we wanted to start this morning and talk about some of the practicals of biblical counseling, the practicals of biblical counseling. Now, biblical counseling is in itself kind of a a strange phrase uh, because biblical counseling as a phrase isn't in the Bible. And we want to make sure that what we're doing here does tie in with what scripture talks about. And it is discipling. It is speaking truth into one another's lives. It is helping people change. We have been cultivating convictions in this biblical counseling class. We know that God's word gives us the answers and how we are to please him in in every situation. We know that pleasing God is possible through Jesus Christ. But you might still ask questions of, well, how do we actually do biblical counseling? How do we help people change? When you're sitting with someone, not just across a giant desk, someone sitting, looking very professional with a yellow pad, taking lots of notes, but when we are just helping someone change, well, what does that look like? Do we just look up a verse and are we done then? I'm going to look at uh, a biblical counselor's practice of biblical counseling. It's in a book called Counseling, uh, 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 edited by by John MacArthur. And the practice of biblical counseling is a seven-chapter section by by Wayne Mack. I'll probably divide that up over a couple weeks. I'm kind of, uh, if you notice, and you'll notice more later, that the rest of the elders are not here this morning. So I kind of am calling an audible and say, hey, I'll just make a biblical counseling class another week. Uh, but I can't promise that we're going to get second part, part next week uh, 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 or on a uh, uh, subsequent week because of the guys on the Mission Trip Relay and being able to, to talk about who's going to teach next week. So this is part one of two of the, of the practice of biblical counseling. You'll see that what we talk about today is really useful in any relationship where you want to grow, in any relationship where you want to change. The basic principles are going to be useful in your parenting. They're useful in your marriages. They're useful in your relationships within small group. It's useful in your ministry to me and by God's grace in my ministry to you. So if you desire to speak into someone's life, if you desire to use truth in someone's life, this will be useful. John, I don't mean to be causing problems by having people not, not sit up there, so don't worry. I, I'm getting used to looking all around anyway. So, uh, okay, so first, and you have your notes there. If you don't have notes, please raise your hand and we will bring some by to you. We're going to, 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 to move quickly. Uh, we're going to see first that we're going to look at cultivating involvement. Cultivating involvement. And there's going to be seven eyes here. I'm going to go through the first three this week. But we're cultivating involvement. We're talking about developing a healthy relationship with a person who is being used in your life to grow, to, 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 to change. And we're going to start off with an illustration here of what not to do. And the illustration is to not treat people like cars. Don't treat people like cars. Okay? When you bring your car to the shop, they plug in a, a, a app now, and it runs a diagnostic test. Or maybe they get out one of their old paper manuals, if you have a certain age car. And then they just do whatever changes there are in the manual. They're just trying to fix the problem. They really don't care how your day is. Now, you might have a really nice auto mechanic who cares how your day is, but they don't need, you, need your life story. 
They're just going to fix your car. And there's a danger in our biblical counseling and our helping one another change of being problem-oriented rather than people-oriented. We want to focus on we're having, a, we're really cultivating a, a relationship, even if it's someone coming to your office for the very first time or someone at work who, who, who you start talking to about any number of issues. This is a real live person. You may have great motives, but that person needs to know that you love them. They need to know that you are listening to them and that you're sympathetic. Proverbs 27, 6 says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. You may need to say hard things, but who's that going to come from? A friend. Or Proverbs 27, verse 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Counsel is best served to a friend. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be someone's best friend before you can speak truth into their lives. But there is a good reminder there of the blessing of speaking to someone or someone speaking into your life who you know loves you. We can tend to be suspicious of people we don't know or we don't trust. Wayne, Wayne, Wayne Mack has a quote here. Impact and influence in people's lives is usually related to their perception of us which is a really interesting thought. Impact and influence in people's lives is usually related to their perception of us. Do they think that you're rude? Do they think that you're unfriendly? Do they think that you are too busy to have time with them? Well, that's going to influence what kind of impact you have on their lives. To see evidence of that, and I know I'm not giving a lot of, a lot of verses there, just think about Paul's defense of his ministry. He was not, in a sense, concerned in his pride about, wow, do they think I'm a real apostle? But he knew that how they perceived him would affect the effectiveness of his ministry. He needed to be seen as someone who had, had an integrity among them, who cried with them. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that you need to be everyone's best friend before you can speak truth into their life. But be the kind of person that deserves respect, that deserves trust, even if not everyone will. And that's great with parenting as well. Now, that isn't, if, if, if you're not the kind of person, that doesn't mean you still can't parent. You have to parent. But be the kind of person that deserves respect and trust. Now, we're going to look at some ways to, to cultivate involvement. And if someone could, could please bring, bring me up one of the notes as well. And, and uh, thank, thanks, John. I'm sorry about that. So first, we're going to cultivate involvement through... I, I, John's got one. All right, unless you got two. Okay, thanks, James. Now James is going to have to get one. Okay, so we're going to cultivate involvement through, through compassion. And just by looking at the example of Jesus, who was a wonderful counselor, as it says in Isaiah 9.6... We see Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, if you're taking notes there, and there's, and there's lots of room for scripture references, and there'll be a bunch of them. Seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Do you have compassion for those that you are ministering to, whether compassion for the suffering that they're going through or for the sin, for them and the sin that they're struggling with? Mark 10, verse 21, describes Jesus' relationship with the rich young ruler, who Jesus, in his, need, in his deity, knew that the rich young ruler would turn away, but he said, uh, Mark says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, 
one thing you lack. Go and sell all, all, all you possess and give to the poor. Jesus knew what was going to happen here, and yet he felt compassion in the man who was enslaved uh, to, to, to his possessions, perhaps to what people thought of him. Luke 7, verses 12 through 13, describes Jesus' compassion for, 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 for the widow of Nain before raising her son back to life. Luke 19, verse 44, describes how when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, knowing that they were going to crucify him, knowing that they were going to be destroyed as a consequence. We just see a few examples there of the compassion that Jesus had. And so we have to ask ourselves, do people that you're speaking to, do they know that you have compassion for them? Are you demonstrating that compassion? We see this example of Paul as well. In Acts 20, verse 31, Paul says, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. We see how heartfelt Paul's ministry was. Every day, ministering with tears, crying as they cried. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, describes Paul's ministry in Corinth. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, now, this is referring to the previous letters he had to write. Uh, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Even in this letter he was sending, he wrote with tears. He talks about the daily pressure he feels for, for all the churches he was ministering to. We, we, most of us are ministering to one church. He describes in 2 Corinthians, 12 verses, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28 to 29, Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? I feel the weight of what they're going through. If you're going to be effectively used in one another's life, you need to cultivate the same kind of compassion. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 through 8. Uh, and I do think that all of this, the scripture is beneficial here. Uh, it's building a case, but also we're going to have some points that are more practical and have less scripture, and you're going to be able to, to pick and choose more. But compassion is not optional. First Thessalonians 2, verses 7 through 8. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we're well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you would become very dear to us. So in your ministry to one another... And it might be someone you're just meeting in care group. Or maybe someone in the church that you're not in care group with. Can you say that they have become very dear to you? Do you have so fond an affection for them? When you are in that discipling relationship, are, are you like a mother who tenderly cares for her own children? So how do we develop this, this genuine compassion? I left a little bit more space in your notes there so you, so you can take some notes. Just real practical. Just think about how you would feel if you were in, in the position that they are in. What would it be like and how would I feel? What emotions would I experience? You should think of the counselee as a family member. And all of this, is really, I'm using what, 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 what Wayne Mack has written as a, uh, a, a curriculum of sorts, just kind of peppered with some of my own experience. So this is from Wayne Mack and not really me most of this. But think of the counselee as a family member right there that gives such pause. 1 Timothy 5, verse 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in, 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 in all purity. Minister to an older man as a father, a younger man as a brother, not as the enemy. 
Think about your own, your own sinfulness as another way to develop compassion. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And the danger here just isn't of that one specific sin, but I think pride in general of, uh, of forgetting that, I, that I'm a sinner like this person. So we don't want to try to minister to someone with a self-righteousness or, or a condescending attitude. But we need to be humbled about our own sinfulness, mourning over our sin, not just theirs. Think about practical ways you can, sh- you can show compassion to them. Tell them that you care for them like Paul does in Philippians 1 verse 8. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I'm so glad you came back after being gone. Rejoice and weep with them. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is especially important when you're having a a difficult uh, time discipling someone or or mentoring with them. You may not feel a lot of, I want to be engaged in their lives. But when they tell you the news that they're having a child, rejoice with them. Even if you're saying, right now, really? Or weep with them. Even if it's the consequences of their sin. Be appropriate in your speech. Proverbs 15, verse 23. A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. I need to always grow in this. Not everything needs to be said at once. So what is timely? And, and agree to, uh, a, there's a lot of wisdom in saying, and a friend said, said this, but a gentleness is saying something when it's going to be received. That doesn't mean sometimes you don't need to say things that are not going to, 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 to be received. But as a, gen, as a general principle, is this going to be received well now? And some you can just say, do I even have enough relationship with this person to say this? Not that that means you shouldn't, but it's a good question to ask. Is, is this a timely word? Keep loving that person when counsel is rejected. This is especially true, but not only for all of us as parents. Mark 10, verse 21 Oh, and, and, and again, this is Jesus with the rich young ruler who loved him even though he was going to reject his counsel. It is difficult to counsel those uh, who are dead set on rejecting you, but keep loving them. And that's going to lead to we need to forgive them. In Matthew 18, verse 22, where Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven as you are seeking to be used as an instrument in God's hand in someone's life, um, they're going to sin against you. They're going to sin against you perhaps by not showing up, by, by oh, all, all kinds of, uh, of ways. It, is, it can be hard. And if you have discipled someone, you know that. And if you've been discipled by someone, you know that. As you think about the previous discipleship relationships in your life, how did you sin against that person? What kind of proud things did you say? How did you spurn their counsel? How did you make life worse for the person who who is discipling you? We're going to have to overlook a lot of offenses if we are going to uh, be used in one another's lives. Also, develop compassion compassion by helping with physical needs. 1 John 3.17, For whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Can you help that, that person, maybe even as they're suffering through the consequences of, of, of their decisions? Can you help them? 
Can you bring them a meal? Can you help them move? So not just, not just speaking at them, but saying, oh, you're, 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 you're moving? Well, can I come and help? These are just some ways to be involved through compassion. So if we're going to uh, cultivate involvement, we need to be involved. And how are they involved in our lives? It's going to be through us showing compassion. It's also through respect, involvement through respect. We don't want to teach uh, unless they actually are a child and are a child. We don't want to treat them as a child. We don't want to make them feel awkward like a project. We don't want to treat them as some kind of social outcast because of their sin. We don't want to despise them because we know that they struggle as a Pharisee, that they're self-righteous. Instead, Romans 12.10 talks about being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Or Philippians 2.3, with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than ourselves. We need to use uh, proper verbal communication to show respect. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 25 is great. The Lord's bondservant, the Lord's servant, and really includes all of us as we serve one another, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, but gentleness, correcting those who, who are in opposition. Perhaps, if, perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Well, that is primarily about those who are, are kind of being called to a speaking ministry. There's good, uh, helpful, to not be quarrelsome, to be kind, to be patient. Ephesians 4.15 describes speaking the truth in love. Proverbs 16 verse 21 says that sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Show respect and honor to the person that you are speaking to. Does that person feel honored by you? That's true even of us with our children. Do they feel shamed by us or honored by us? Are we treating them the way we would want to be treated? Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Proverbs 16 verse 24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. doesn't mean we don't say hard things, but are we saying these things in a way that communicates honor? So we need to have proper verbal communication. We also have proper nonverbal communication. And, and, and th this is a list that I, I, I don't often refer to, but I have uh, incorporated over time. Because I can be a lazy sitter. Like when I'm sitting at home, like I'm one of those people who my head is on the back of the couch, the rest of my body is just kind of splayed out. Well, I have to be attentive to how am I sitting when I'm meeting with someone. It could be at coffee. It could be in my office. It could be on a couch. And am I facing them? Is my body positioned towards them? But at the same time, do I have a, a relaxed body posture. If I have a resting angry face, someone in my life should come and tell me that. You always look mad. Remember to smile. Occasionally I remember to smile. But I should have a relaxed body posture, not because I'm not engaged, but to show them I'm not rushing off, off somewhere. It's nothing's worse. And sometimes you have to do this, but to keep looking at your clock. Lean forward slightly. Show interest with the person that you're speaking to. Have, have eye contact, but be sensitive with, with that eye contact. And honestly, I've known brothers in, 
end of the pass. I got much more done by going on a walk with them side by side because they just felt really awkward uh, about eye contact and some of it because of, of their upbringing and their father. I got much more done just going for a walk with them rather than, and you have to be careful not just staring at them. Now, some people will stare at you and you're like, I don't know where my eyes should go now. Uh, but, but as much as, you know, so, so give them a break, but do be attentive. You want, you want to look engaged with them. Make sure to show respect by take the counselor's problems seriously. I was involved in, in, in counseling someone once, and I took their, their problem very seriously. But they said one thing that I made light of, and they came back and, and, and confronted me about that months later. Now, for me, it was kind of sad because, wow, there's been this there I wish I had known. But it was a great warning to say, that sounded honestly ridiculous, but I shouldn't have let you know that it sounded ri- ri- ridiculous. Take, take the problem serious. If they're willing to talk about it, then don't make light of it. That doesn't mean, though, that sometimes a little humor when you're meeting with someone can be very valuable. So, sometimes things just need to be exposed as, no, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Absolutely, because they know it too. But just do that with, 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 with a lot of wisdom. We, we, we need to trust the person we are ministering to as well. And I don't mean trust in a sense like I, I met with you, so now, so now I, I, so here's the keys to my car and why didn't you come and babysit my, 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 my kids and move in. It's not that kind of trust. But we do want to make sure until we have, are convinced that we shouldn't, that we have love that bears all things and that believes all things, that hopes all things, that endures all things. We do, it's okay to ask qualifying questions, but we shouldn't be playing the role of the skeptic and the truth seeker that it's kind of, kind of like, like just hold everything that someone says at bay. Oh, I've got to balance that. Now, eventually some people will prove in their character they are not truthful. And, and it becomes much more difficult. But love, and that is the loving thing then to do, to ask follow-up questions and hard questions because they've proven to be a slippery person. But as the conversation begins, you want to believe them. And you want to assume, as long as they are confessing that they know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, that their aim is the same that yours is, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. They want to be pleasing to him. And so trust that. You're, you're having this conversation because this person does want to, 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 to be pleasing to, to the Lord. Um, next, we need to express confidence in, in the counselee. And, and, and I do this cautiously. It's, it's not like, you go, you're going to do awesome. It's more like, first, like Philippians 2, verse 13. It's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Expect them to respond in obedience to God's word. Have hope. They're going to have a great time in God's word in this upcoming week. Expect them to say, you've warned me about being on the computer late at night. Well, I know you're going to do that. Because your goal is to please Christ. And you're going to utilize his resources to be pleasing to him. So, so express that kind of, kind of confidence. You can show honor and respect to the counselee by welcoming their, their, their input. And that, that means re- regarding this process, 
You know, and that's true of discipling relationships. Hey, so we've met a, a couple times. We, 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 we've gotten coffee. Do you feel like I'm getting to know you? Is there anything that I could be doing better? Have I offended you by the way that I've said anything? Unfortunately, I, I'm afraid too often the answer would be yes, but it's good to ask. You also want to, uh, to, to maintain maintain confidentiality as much as you are able. We can't promise absolute confidentiality with a person who we are shepherding, who you are meeting with. You can't because just people say things that either you might need to call Child Protective Services or you might need to call a, a, a police officer because someone's in danger or because they might be in danger of taking th their own life. If you have to involve others, though, we do so reluctantly. And the person that we are speaking with knows that. It's not about gossip. It's not about us being busybodies. Uh, Jay Adams has his really good advice how to say this. We, we, we ought to say, I'm glad to keep confidence in the way that the Bible instructs me. That means, of course, I shall never involve others unless God requires me to do so. Like, that's just such a great way of us saying that. I still do think it, it, it is great as, uh, uh, unless it's a legal matter, to, to, to say, hey, can, um, you've kind of shared some, some, some heavy things with, with me. Uh, do, do, do I have permission to talk to the elders and, uh, or, 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 or permission to talk to my wife about this because she might be, be, be ministering to, to the spouse? But I like to, to ask permission first. I'm trying to think if, if there, there has been times where, where people have been very hesitant, um, but I, I can't remember a time when someone says no. If that happens, you can ask me about that. So, okay, so we want to be cultivating involvement through the compassion we show, through the respect that, that, that we show, and through the, the sincerity that we show. We, we, don't, we don't want there to be any pretense upon our part. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, we, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, not by the manifestation of truth, but, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We don't have hidden agendas. We don't have false motives. We're, we're honest about who we are. We need to be honest uh, about our qualifications we're, we're not meeting with someone because we're gurus. We're, we're like them, really ultimately, servants of Christ. We have the same tools that other servants have. We are not, as we meet with someone, even if we're the ones who maybe have grown more in a certain area than they have, we're, we're not like a class of priests. Our skills should be reproducible skills. What we are doing in your life, you should be doing in my life and in one another's lives. We need to be honest about our weaknesses. And that doesn't mean confessing every sin, but we don't have to present ourselves as sinless. We don't have to present ourselves as supermen. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.3 describes how I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Romans 7.24, he's very honest with uh, Romans, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? And then he looks to Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.13, he is open about who he used to be. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy. 
So he, he is free and open with his testimony. At the same time, we want to be honest about our weaknesses. We want to be careful not to talk too, too much about ourselves either. We don't want to make ourselves the uh, uh, topic. We want to be honest. I'm going to have to start moving quicker, not surprisingly. We want to be honest uh, about our goals and agendas, um, that we're going to stick to God's word and his methods to what scripture says. I think it's great also to say, hey, scripture doesn't have an answer for this, so I'm either not going to be able to answer that or I maybe have some wisdom, but scripture's not clear. We need to be, be honest about our, our limitations as a counselor or a discipler. Paul tells how he was perplexed by them. And we should be okay to say that, like not in an offensive way, like you're really weird. Uh, but you know, I really don't know how to answer that. Hey, can, 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 can I phone a, a friend? Can, 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 can I bring in one of the elders on this? Because there's times where we just need more wisdom. I call pastor friends. So we need to be showing that involvement through, through compassion, through all the other things you know to say there. Compassion and respect and by, and, and, and by being, being sincere with them. We also need to instill hope. And I don't remember this every time I meet with someone, but whether they're going through, through suffering or whether they are dealing with the consequences of sin or trying to overcome sin, it is incredibly valuable to instill hope. Hope is essential. Often that when someone is, is ready and willing to talk, it is because they are already feeling hopeless. They're facing the same problem for such a long time. And not just sin problems, although if it is a sin problem, often by the time they're ready to sit down and, and talk with you, it's a sin problem that they've had for a long time. It's a pattern that they've already tried to change. You're kind of often their last-ditch effort. We see this with our kids at times. They may be dealing with a sin problem for years before they'll talk to their parents about it. They need hope. They need a hope that's based on what God's word actually says. So let's look at a contrast here between true and false hope. Many people's hope is in their problems going away. And sometimes that can be, when this certain sin goes away, I'll be like free and clear. Like, 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 like this is my one sin. If I could just overcome this sin, the rest of my life would be great. No, what's true is then you see more of your sin and you grow in other ways. Or, 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 or if this one problem would, would go away, if the suffering would stop, if this health condition would stop, everything else is going to be fine. That is not a true hope. Sometimes others are willing to, to affirm that hope. A whole lot of Christian literature being, being, being written, if you can find a Christian bookstore and go there, a lot of it is full of false hope. Everything is going to work out okay. We're not talking about it in Romans 8.28 way, but everything's going to be fine. Or if you do X, then Y will happen. If you have a Bible time every morning, your life is going to be great. You'll have all kinds of joy. As, or, or, or you won't struggle with that sin anymore. Just, just, do, just take this pill and you'll feel better. I'm not even talking about pills. Just we can do it with Bible times. Or really what you need to do is, 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 is pray. If you pray about this every day, 
Your, 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 your problems are going to go away. Or your sanctification in this area, it is going to be taken care of. And we often can forget to tell people that change takes effort, as we see in 1 Timothy 4.7, where Paul tells Timothy to discipline yourself for the purpose of, of godliness. It takes discipline. Philippians 2.12 describes how they need to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, that balancing of the provision of God's grace, but also effort. Change takes work. The hope is that Christ enables us to do that work, Thinking rightly about the way we've suffered, not even just our sin, but the way we've suffered takes work. That's sanctification. Often you can meet with, with someone who, is, who has just got misapplied promises or just kind of Christian wisdom that they picked up that if you do this, then, then if you do A, then B will happen. We need to humbly and gently challenge these false hopes. In a sense, what we have to do is take away someone's crutch. We have to do that gently because they'll be standing there on, on, on one leg maybe. But really, what we're doing is, is giving them a whole new leg, right? Because that is who they are in Christ. They are a new creature in Christ. They don't need false hope. They need real hope. And so what is some of the characteristics of true hope? True hope is biblically and and. And Wayne Max says this really well in quotes there. True hope is biblically based expectation of good. I love that. True hope is a biblically based expectation of good. It's based on God's promises, like in 2 Peter 1.4. God has granted us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Precious and magnificent promises. That is what our, our biblically-based expectations of good are. They are in God's promises as they really mean. True hope is the result of true salvation. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3, we saw this. That we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope through his resurrection. Colossians 1 verse 5 talks about the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you've previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. There is hope in our salvation. 1 Timothy 1 1 describes Christ Jesus who is our hope. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. It is our hope in him. Our hope of sanctification is in him. Our, 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 our hope in the justification of Ultimately, the, the, the vindication of all things, the writing of all suffering is in him. Our hope is in him. True hope is, is holistic in focus. And, and what we're going for, for here is that hope is temporal, but it's also eternal. It's personal, but hope is also in God's kingdom and glory. See, hope is not just about us now. Sometimes we're going to have to get out of, uh, of this hour to look for what that hope is. That, that answer, uh, what we're hoping in, may be eternal. And it may not even be about us. It may be about God's kingdom purposes. Like, like how Paul in, in a Philippians 1.20, where he's facing being killed for his allegiance to Jesus Christ. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will now, even as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. See, that's, that's a big version of hope. This is about the exaltation of Christ. This is not just about hope about not having his head lopped off. 
Or Genesis 50, 20, we see Joseph's hope in, as he processes his uh, suffering from his brother's hand. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. It's not just about him. The suffering that we go through may result in hope for many. As Paul talks about that we can comfort others with the comfort that we've received. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. My hope goes beyond this life. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And that ultimate good is our becoming like Christ, our glorification. True hope is, is more than just this, this situation is going to resolve itself. True hope is realistic. And Romans 8.28 doesn't say that all things that work together for good are good. We go through suffering. We go through bad things. We go through painful things. Suffering is real. Christians do not pretend that we don't suffer. Christians don't pretend that what we're facing is really hard. Romans 4.19 uh, describes, describes Abraham. It's, it says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's a very realistic look at the fact of, wow, God's promised a child? Um, I'm really old here. This ain't going to happen. But his promise, faith, his hope is in God's promises. It is going to happen. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was, he was able also to perform. That's what our confidence is. It's, it's, it, it is realistic. Yes, yes, his body's old, but God's promises are not. God is powerful. True hope must be renewed daily. And this is so important for those that we're ministering to. It's not just going to be, hey, we had coffee. And we're feeling more hopeful. The fact that we had coffee helped, you know, just feeling upbeat. Uh, but what, a, what about tomorrow morning? What about the morning after that? 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 describes how our inner man is being renewed day by day, even though our outer man is decaying. Then get to the end of verse 18. Um, or, or verse 18, well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. And this is where our hope is going to come from. Our hope has to be that beginning of Colossians 3 hope, where, where, where we're setting our eyes on the things above where Christ is, at the right hand of God, at the finished work of Christ, at his glorification, at his eternal reign. This is where our hope has to be. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I don't know if any sanctification, if any pleasing God happens as we only look at our circumstances or our sin. True hope is inseparable from a diligent and accurate study of God's word. True hope is found in knowing what God's word really says. And, and, and not just stapling on verses. Psalm 119 verse 49 says, Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. We hope in God's word as it really means. And this takes work. We are not going to have much hope. And the person we're serving is not going to have much hope. They might be, be, be reading the Bible, but that, 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 that truth is going to have to sink into them deeper than that. They're going to have to understand that. They can't be just passively reading. Hope doesn't come without meditation. 
True hope is a matter of the will. 1 Peter 1 verse 13, and we know this verse well. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be, to be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's just one example of, of keeping our hope fixed on the revelation of Jesus Christ. But there's, but there's will there. We have to work hard at hope. We have to work hard to believe God's promises. Now, we do this with God's strength because he is the vine and we're the branches and we draw our strength from him. This is a matter of obedience. We, uh, hope is, is, is not just looking. It's going to be a matter of the will. And it's based on knowledge. True hope is based on knowledge. James 1, verses 2 through 3. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Here's a great example. They can have joy in their trials because of what they know. They know that that testing produces endurance. They know that. That's concrete. That's why they can have joy in their trials. Hope is going to have to come from knowledge. So let's look next then. How do we inspire hope? How do we inspire hope? We need to help people to grow in their relationship with Christ. We need to help people to grow in their relationship with Christ. There's no real hope without salvation. John 3.36, the wrath of God is abiding on them. I haven't figured this out with my kids yet. You know, I, I, and, and, and we parents, we want them to grow in, in self-control, but we also know that they really can't obey unless they are regenerate, unless they have new life. But the wrath of God is abiding on them. So we point them to Jesus Christ. He is the only one that they can have hope, but you still need to obey me. So there's kind of an interesting balance there. Anyways, uh, but do the, does a person we're talking to, do they have an ongoing walk with the Lord? And I think this is something that's going to reveal itself over time. And even then, it may not reveal itself. Many of you know many brothers and sisters in Christ. You're like, I don't really know if they're saved or not. You're kind of holding, it's, it's, it's not for you to judge. You, 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 in a sense, you don't know, but you're, you, you listen to them and you're like, I don't hear any affection for the Lord. Not that someone has to call God Father, though Jesus teaches us to pray that way, but it'd be so sweet to hear him talk about God as Father, to know his grace, or I would love to see if they had an appetite for God's word. True life is, that's what eternal life is, it's knowing God. It's not just, is, is God out there to them? Is God a historical figure to them? But do they love him? I described eternal life to kids as uh, an eternally loving and obeying God. That's what eternal life is. Loving and obeying God. So do they know him? So we have to be asking ourselves that because then we're going to have to say, how can I help them know God? Maybe we should get together and read the word together because I don't know really what happens when you open the word. Or get them praying. Sometimes when you hear someone pray, and like this is not a fail-proof test, so if I ask you to pray, don't think I'm testing you. Uh, but you're like, oh, I don't think they've done that in a while. Now, it could just be that they're not used to praying out loud. But sometimes you can tell that someone doesn't have a lot of affection for the Lord. Sometimes you can hear them pray and you're like, I think that person's saved. We need to help, as, as we inspire hope, to teach people to think biblically. There is hope in God's word. There is hope in truth. And that means we're going to have to help people to think biblically. 
to think biblically about the specific situation that they're going through. So let's say someone is, is always eager to get out of their current job. And really, as you, as you talk to them, you realize that, 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 that the real problem is complaining. So what theologically could you teach them to help them think biblically about this specific situation? Well, that life in a fallen world, work is hard and it's unpleasant and, 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 and there is toil to it because of the curse. But also, you can teach them how they are created for good works and that those good works include the eight hours a day where they do their job. And so they can do good works at their job. And you can help them understand that we are workers by nature, not just by curse right? That God made Adam and Eve to tend the garden even before the fall, and they're going to be workers for eternity. Those are just a couple of the truths that, that, that you can help someone to start to think biblically about the situation they're facing. You can help them think biblically about God's character. Do they see God as a pushover or someone who's cruel, maybe like their father was who burst out in, in anger? You need to help them think biblically about the possibilities for good and the suffering that they're going through. I quoted James 1, 2, 2 through 4 earlier. Help them understand that in the trials they're going through, in the suffering that they're going through, that God has a purpose, that their faith is being tested to produce endurance, and endurance is going to have its perfect results so that they may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What you're going through is going to result in your maturity. They need to help them think biblically about what God's purposes are, about the divine resources they have. We assume until, we, until they, it just becomes super clear that they're not, that they are united to Christ. If, 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 if they have a confession of faith, we're going to go for them as long as we can, saying that, that you have resources in Christ Jesus. Eventually, you may say, brother, I don't know if you know the Lord Jesus because you're not changing, but... If they are in Christ, they can do all things through him who strengthens them, including being content, as he talks about in context there. We need to help them think biblically about the nature and cause of, uh, of the problem. And this is the danger often for getting a, a, a secular diagnosis for heart problems to stop us from thinking about what the real problem is. Now, not every problem is a sin problem, but every problem presents an opportunity to sin or more positively, every problem presents an opportunity to please Christ. So we need to help them to think biblically uh, uh, about this problem. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came to redeem us from every lawless deed, Titus 2.14, to purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. If you are in Christ, you have the ability to please him. So what is at root here in this problem? And we need to help them to think biblically about what they are saying. You know, people, what people say reflects what they think. And so what keeps coming out of their mouths? Really, you're going to help them to learn to speak biblically as well. If they keep saying, well, I can't do that, is it because they are unwilling to do that? Is it because they don't really understand the resources that they have in Christ Jesus? Or is it just that they understand that, but they just don't have the practical instruction yet? What, 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 either way, that I can't isn't true unless it's sin. Then they can't do that. My wife makes me mad. 
not my wife. Husbands choose to respond with anger. With some people that you're ministering to, you, you may spend a lot of time saying, you need to stop saying that. Is, is, is that really true? Did your wife really make you mad? I've tried everything and it hasn't worked. Sometimes people can, can feel that way. Oftentimes, though, they really haven't tried that hard and they've done what is convenient to them. Often people can have un, unrealistic expectations. They think that, well, I've tried everything for a week. Last here about inspiring hope, we have providing uh, pro- providing godly examples. And, uh, oh, no, wait, I'm sorry, pro- pro- providing, uh, here it is, how to inspire hope. Yeah, yeah, pro- 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 providing godly examples of hope. And the idea here is that we show them hope by having our own hope, that we have hope in them, that we are confident that to the extent that they are in Christ Jesus, that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and Christ Jesus to all generations. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now that is building upon the previous verses there. But, but to have that confidence that this person can be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they can please him in this horrible circumstance that they're going through. For us to have that hope and, and in a sense to, to, to want to, through osmosis even, to say, I hope they see the hope that I have for them because that hope is based on truth. There's also the example of a hope in, a, in others. God has changed many others. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 talks about that. How no temptation or trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with a temptation will provide the way escape so that you also will be able to endure it. That that's true of all saints. That what you're facing, you are not the first person only but that a myriad of saints have been able to please God in the same situation, relying upon the same resources of the same Lord. Four minutes for our last point. That's not really probably going to happen, which is not a surprise to anyone who's seen me do equipping hour before, or anything really. Okay, we, 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 we uh, need to, to, to take to take. Uh, uh, inventory as well. And like that gets a, a, a little wordy. Really, it means we're going to have to do a whole lot of watching and a whole lot of listening. We need to, to, to take an, an inventory to understand what is going on in their lives. We don't want to be li- like Eli, who assumed Hannah was drunk when really wish she was praying. We don't want to be like Job's friends, who jumped to assumptions that, oh, he must be suffering because of his sin. We need to gain information before giving counsel. And this is especially true when, when, when our relationship is getting started. Often, counselees are slow to tell the whole story. And that may be because in fear you'll look down on them, you'll ridicule them, you'll betray their confidence. Uh, and this is true in, in our discipling relationships. It may be, you, you may know someone for years before you really get to know what they're really struggling with. Now, here's some kinds of data to gather in the few minutes I have, I have remaining. Obviously, I have to come back to this. There's physical data. You're going to want to ask questions. And, and I don't ask all these questions all the time. Uh, but 
is this person sleeping? What is their diet like? Are they drinking a lot of Red Bull? Are they up all night? Do they get exercise? Do they have a, 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 a illness that they're struggling with that is making life particularly difficult? And uh, Huey's mentioned how there are physical illnesses that can affect our emotions. Are, are, are they taking medication now? And not because I want to criticize them, but medication has side effects. They could be super discouraged because they're sleepy all the time because they're taking heart medication. We need to, to gather data about their resources. And what we mean here is the spiritual resources that they have. Are they in Christ? And, 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 and I talked about this. Uh, we, we want to assume based on their communication of, of the gospel. And when you meet with someone, say, so, so I've never heard your testimony. Can you share that? So when did you come to uh, know the Lord? What is the gospel? And as long as they don't say anything that is not, uh, is, is not orthodox, we just know someone can't believe that and be saved, we should generally assume that this person is saved. We should be, be acting upon that. And, and, and you'll definitely have opportunity to follow up, just as many of us have seen with our kids. Well, they are confessing Christ now, uh, but over time, uh, I'm seeing that their life is not matching up. And, and so you have opportunities to follow up. That's true if they say something that is simply not biblically true. If that cannot be part of the gospel, you know that they're not saved. If they are in a place where they are refusing to obey God's word, returning to the same sin again and again and again with a stubbornness, you know that that does not match up with a biblical description of a Christian. If someone is church disciplined, it's also time to say, well, I mean, there still might be some far off chance, but we're treating them as a lost person now uh, because, because of their ongoing sin. We may never know, but you're, but you're almost definitely not going to know in one meeting with that person. And when we become concerned over time, we, we can encourage them. Brother, do you think you're, 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 you're really saved? And you can show verses that talk about change, that 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, such were some of you, but this is who you still are. Uh, and I'm going to have to stop there. John said, Isaiah, you need to start right at 9, and he was right. Okay. Well, that is a, a start here in some of the practicals. And even though... Uh, I, I might do more official counseling than some of you do. I know some of you do in roles as, as care group leaders or maybe on root staff. But you also can, I think, use a lot of these skills when you're meeting with someone, whether from, from our church or a different church. Anytime you're meeting with someone who wants to, 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 to grow, who's eager to, 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 to please the Lord, these are some of the, the skills that you can, start, you can start with. And for you to be cultivating a biblically-based hope with them, I, I, I mean, even that, uh, uh, is, 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 is worth your, your coming this morning if you remember, I want this person to leave hopeful because of who they are in Christ Jesus. I have much more to talk about, but we're going to have to stop there. Okay, 
I'm going to close in prayer, and then we'll have a nice break. Uh, I encourage you, you all to meet our, our, our newcomers, either who are here this morning or who might be coming for service. Let's pray. Uh, dear Father, uh, we want to balance well, Lord. A lot of this is, is, is some practical wisdom, uh, but your scripture talks a lot about the compassion we ought to feel for our brothers and sisters, the, the, the honor that we show them, and not just those uh, who know you, Lord, uh, showing an honor to all men. And Lord, we, we want to show that we are engaged and that we're not just judging, Lord. We want to make uh, our ministry to them easy, Lord. We want to be well used, and whether that's husbands being well used in the lives of our wives or vice versa, or us being well used in the lives of our children, we want to be faithful uh, to be used, Lord. We want to be instilling hope, a hope that is not just a pasting on of some Bible verse, but a hope that is just deeply rooted in strong theology. It's deeply rooted in promises. And Lord, we want to be those uh, who are good listeners, Lord. You know I need to grow in this, Lord, and that I have to remind myself of these things, Lord. Help us all to grow in, in good listeners, and as we're going to see, uh, good at asking questions as well, Lord. And Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, time, Lord. I pray that it would be, be beneficial and that it would complement the ministry that these uh, dear saints are doing, whether in their home or in this upcoming week. Uh, Father, we pray for this time that as we break now, uh, help us to listen well to one another, to be a blessing to one another, to communicate hope to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.